Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and recently, the Center for American Progress, one of the most noted think tanks in Washington, D.C., issued a report that said, and I'm quoting here, online service companies have produced substantial wealth, but these gains have failed to reach the American workforce more broadly. Pervasive, ubiquitous digital surveillance has eroded American civil liberties. Exploitation of people's data has created novel consumer threats around privacy, manipulation of consumer behavior, and discrimination. Americans face these and other harms from online services, including, but not limited to, widespread fraud, abuse of small businesses, abuse of market power, faulty algorithms, racist and sexist technological development, cybersecurity challenges, threats to workers' rights, curtailed innovation, and challenges with online radicalization and misinformation. The White House has been on top of this set of pervasive and significant problems that have been created by big tech platforms and social media. Last week, they released their approach to dealing with these problems. And the author of that original report, at least one of the co-authors, who outlined all of those significant harms, is with us to talk about what the problems are and what policy and government can do about them. Aaron Simpson is the Director of Technology Policy at the Center for American Progress. Aaron, thanks so much for being with us on Great Ideas. Thank you for having me, Matt. Thanks for outlining that uh, wide swath of issues at the top. You know, when you say it like that, boy, it is challenging. Sometimes when my kids are acting like maniacs, I'll just pause them for a second and say, okay, why is this good? Like, give me give me any good that's coming out of what you're doing. I got to say, after reading that list that you put together, I sort of feel the same way. I mean, it's it, it's sort of tough to, to outline the good, but let's at least define the problem a little bit more closely. So when you put out your report, it wasn't just to sort of be a, a, a nag to big tech. You were actually outlining, you know, there are problems and we need to tackle them. We need to come up with some solutions. Let's start by defining the problems. What are the biggest problems with tech in terms of harms? What do we most need to solve for here? Yeah. So we are, first of all, you know, we critique in some ways because we love the men, the benefits are manifest, right? There are many. We are using these services every day. Most of us are living so much of our lives online, right? We're, we're online now and I'm on my phone all the time and I do so much of my work and my personal life. And for most Americans, that's the case. We work online, we're at school online. The internet is just such an enmeshed part of everything we do. And that comes with that is this really wide swath of issues that have popped up, right? So, so when you list them all, it does sound like a lot, right? We've got economic issues, privacy issues, consumer protection issues, civil rights problems. Um, but we, we can get maybe concrete. Why don't we illustrate, you know, and, and talk a yes. little bit about yes. some things? Because sometimes it sounds structural, but actually all of these problems are ones that we can recognize. So there's the big events that have kind of captured all of our imaginations about what tech problems we might have. So think about online voter suppression in 2020 or um, Russian foreign interference in the U.S. election in 2016. 
Um, we we have listened to online harassment campaigns. Think about the Gamergate scandals of years mm. old. Um, or think about the atrocities in Myanmar, right? Facebook played a really important role in um, fueling a genocide algorithmically. And so we're familiar with these big global events, um, but there's also all of these news stories that pop up in your local news um, that could happen to you, that happen every day, right? So a black teenager shows up at an ice rink and she's turned away because facial recognition technology misidentifies her as someone who had a fight there a couple years ago. Or another independent local business in your town closes because it can't compete with Amazon. And then you've got a storm and the power goes out and the internet goes down and you don't have anywhere local to go to pick up supplies after a storm. And we don't have supply chains anymore that can get us the goods we need because we have really big companies that have completely decimated all of our local infrastructure. Um, or think about workers. I think about Am your Amazon drivers, you know, delivering those packages, ferrying them in and out, and then going back to their cars to pee in water bottles because their demands at work are so stringent and they have to go so fast that they don't have time to go to the bathroom. Um, or, you know, think about, you know, think about an ex who is, you know, tracking you, stalking you, harassing you, and now they've got Apple AirTags on your car so that they always know where you are all of the time. All of these things are, yeah, it's, it's yeah, a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it's very hard, I think, to hold on to all of them in our minds. And each one of them reminds me a little bit of a fractal. The more you drill down on it, the more it's like, well, then there's this problem. And then there's this problem. And then there's this problem. And of course, it works in the other direction as well. For example, you brought up the the scenario of a black teenager shows up to an ice rink is misidentified as someone who participated in a brawl and is turned away now there are there there is there's a basic problem there of discrimination it's a technology problem because we know that facial recognition software struggles mightily to identify people of color especially black people correctly but it also begs a larger question, which is, why the heck is the ice rink using facial recognition technology? <laughs> why is anybody using facial recognition technology? And so that's kind of that's kind of what I want to do here is I want to I want to zoom up a little bit. Now, when I read your report, I applied my own sort of categories here just to try to wrap my head around this long list of problems that we're dealing with. I'm not sure you would do this the same way, but here's the way it seemed to me. I think that it roughly breaks down into there are privacy harms, there are economic and market harms, and there are societal harms. And I'm including in societal harms, you know, democracy. That's 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 a big one. Just um, democracy. Yeah. Just just democracy, you know. <laughs> not not to worry. It's, yeah. it's a footnote. Um you know, and and when I look at what the White House has put forward, and we'll get into that, it does seem like their their approaches do kind of generally map to those categories. Let me start here by um, allowing you to say, no, 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 Matt, you're 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 crazy here. Are those categories roughly right, or how would you break this down? Yes, yeah, those categories are roughly right. Um... I think, I think we sort of broke them down into four when we were trying to sort of amass all of this into something that made sense, which is just 
economic, consumer protection, privacy, and civil rights. Um, and I then see. you're totally right. Those big societal or those big democratic harms are just sort of layered on top of all of it. So yeah, those are really reasonable ways to sort of think about the different pieces. All right. So um, at least it's, look, for radio and pod purposes, I like three. You like, I like three. three better I than support four. Three. Fewer is always better. One of the great consultants in democratic politics was speaking to a candidate who I shall not name years ago in the run-up to a Senate campaign. And the candidate, he asked the candidate the classic political question, why do you want to be a U.S. senator? And the candidate said, well, we face five great challenges in America today. And the consultant said, let me stop you there. For the purposes of this campaign, we face three great challenges. Okay. So let's just, let's just okay. go with the three. Let's start Good. with the first one, which is privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's, that's big enough. Um, I, boy, when, when you look at this, you've got data brokers who are compiling the massive amount of information that we are leaking onto the internet constantly. You've got facial recognition, which you and I just laid out. You've got identity theft. You've got massive issues. So I guess my first question to you is, do you think Americans understand just how profoundly their privacy has been taken away? They they voluntarily give most of this away when they use phones and social media. Are they truly informed about the consent of of, of what they're giving away here? Mm. Well, They've got issues with informed and we've got issues with consent there, right? So consent here is an illusion. Most people don't read the privacy policies. And even if they did, most people don't have a choice. So there have been journalists who have tried really hard, expert tech journalists, to not use any of the big tech services that really extract all that data from you. And they have failed again and again to do so. It's almost impossible to get these services out of your life. And for most of us, we don't have a choice. We have to use the big services. And in order to do that, you have to click yes. And then we Mm -hmm. all have gotten used to just like clicking yes, right? It would take the average person over a year to read all of the privacy policies that they've agreed to. And so at best, we feel uneasy about this. But at worst, I think Americans are resigned. It feels like there's nothing we can do about this. It feels like we just have to agree to this. And so it's certainly not consent. And I think people have an idea of where their data is going. But what I hear is a lot of rationalizing about, okay, well, what do I care? I have nothing to hide. And that's a really reasonable response, right? Like, okay, who cares? You know, have my personal data and then you'll target ads. And I'd rather you not have it, but I, I just need to get to my Gmail account, right? So I try to have people think about it this way. So certainly there are these concrete individual things that are going to come back to bite you about sharing all of your data. You are going to be profiled by ads, which they love to say is a good thing. We're going to customize your ads. But also that has a big impact about what you see online, what job opportunities you see, what financial offers, what housing offers. And so you're seeing only a subset of things on the internet and you're missing out on all of this other information. And you don't have a, a window into what's happening there. And then, as you mentioned, your data's out there, right? A lot of these companies are collecting all of this data, reselling and reselling and reselling, going bankrupt. Then it's bought by someone else. And so all of our data is out there. And we have so much identity theft and security vulnerabilities. So all of those are the individual problems that maybe people are aware of. 
but try to think about privacy as a collective good, right? Like, sure, maybe I don't, you know, maybe I feel like I have nothing to hide. But if I'm buying in and if I'm trying to use privacy sensitive tools, I'm supporting an ecosystem that supports privacy. And that means that human rights defenders or journalists or political dissidents who I rely on to protect my rights, that's making them safer. When you're using privacy sensitive tools, you're making, you're investing in an ecosystem of tools that actually protect your privacy. And that's not just good for you, that's good for your neighbors or your loved ones. And especially with the, yeah, with the political climate, right? Like people seeking abortions or people who are trying to fight back uh, against all kinds of um, ilk, right? Like privacy is an enabling right. And if we think about it as protecting our community, then I think people get it more about just what's at stake. You know, it strikes me as I was hearing you run through that and boy, you really lay it out so compellingly. It just immediately struck me that privacy is the wrong word. It's a euphemism that we apply on top of this. And when you think about it, it's like, it's so amorphous. And it does lead to that reaction of, I don't have anything to hide. I'm law abiding. I'm not that kinky. You know, I, I'm, I'm not into, I'm not into weird stuff. You know, I was going to make a joke before, like, I, I'm a fan of South Park. Okay. Now the world knows that about me. Okay. So when you were talking about signing the user agreement, I'm thinking about the episode from 10 years ago, where one of the kids signs the iTunes user agreement and ends up consenting to being attached to other human beings in a human sent iPad. Now that's bad. But the the point is, what you're really talking about is not privacy. You're talking about very profound invasions of your rights and your economic potential. I mean, we just finished recording a show about the potential for Donald Trump. I'm sorry, I'm giving away my partisan affiliation here. If he achieves office again in a second term to apply what he calls his Schedule F executive order and drum anyone who is not a pro-Trump MAGA type out of the federal government. You could lose your job because of what data brokers put together as a profile about you and what your political leanings are. Years ago, when I was in graduate school, I was at a party and there was a photo taken of me that out of context, I don't know, I think I was at a Mexican restaurant and someone put a sombrero on me. Well, you know, it was pretty innocent But you could also, it now lives on the internet somewhere. And someone could take that out of context about me and say, well, this guy's problematic. Maybe we shouldn't hire him. There are so, so many examples. And the point is, once our information escapes lab containment, you don't know what's going to happen to it. And this is so bad in the context of people who are under 18. And I had the author and Harvard Law Scholar, Leah Plunkett, on the show last year to talk about her book, Sharonhood, and about why we should not voluntarily give away information about our kids in the form of photos and social media posts. Boy, I'm getting on a rant here. Okay. I just wanted to underline (laughs) everything you just said. Aaron Simpson, you're an expert. How would you and the team at CAP fix this? Oh, this is something we can fix. This is not this is not an issue that we have to I'm accept. delighted. No, tell me more. And this is an issue with bipartisan interest and a long history of trying to do something about it. But we need privacy rights in this country. We need very robust federal privacy protections. And we have been trying to pass legislation on this for years. And we we've even gotten better and better ideas, right? 
we think about like the cookie pop-ups that come from Europe. Like, are you going to accept the cookies? And you just click yes, because you're trying to get to the website. We don't need to settle for a notice and choice framework or a consent framework. We can just say, we don't think a lot of this sensitive data should ever be collected about people. There's no reason for you to ever have this about people. That's going to take care of a huge part of the problem. And then we can, we can, there's all kinds of individual rights we can institute that people can have. There's all kinds of collective rights we can institute. These are rights that we don't have and that we can establish that other countries have. We, the United States, are unique in lacking a federal privacy law. And that Why? is such a shame. Why? What, what's, what's the holdup? It, there are Republicans, there are Democrats, you know, like there are normie humans uh, who seem to all want this. Mm-hmm. Um, is this just like all a big tech money lobbying thing? Like, Well, some of it is big tech money lobbying and some of it is political disagreement, um, really about like some of the fundamental parts of um, how the federal laws relate to state laws. So People, we have a lot of disagreements about whether or not the federal law should be the floor or the ceiling. And right now in Congress, um, we had sort of a renewed push around the America Data Protection and Privacy Act. And California, who is really, uh, has one of the most uh, robust state privacy laws, objected, even though they said, no, 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 we, we don't like this because it messes with California data protection, even though it probably would have established stronger federal protections for everyone. And so we have like a states versus federal thing going. And there's really no, there's really no excuse for us to not have a federal data privacy law. And so everyone should be calling whoever they care about, because there is bipartisan interest in doing this, and we should really push. Well, and again, this has just come up. This is another one of those issues where I can give you a specific example and it just begs a larger question. Mm-hmm. We, we've just had a lot of focus on this around personal freedom and reproductive rights. We now have a number of states where it is illegal to get an abortion under any circumstances. And there have been threats from state legislatures that they're going to somehow try to outlaw you crossing state lines. And now there's concern that mm-hmm. data brokers could try to put together profiles on you and figure out, are you pregnant? Might you be seeking an abortion? They could track your your movements through your iPhone or through your easy pass. And all of this begs the question. I mean, of course, this is terrible for, for, for pregnant women. This is This is terrible for reproductive health. Why should anybody be tracking any of this stuff? It's just, it's sort of mind numbing. All right, right before the break, Aaron, I hit you with my own personal solution, which is let's just let's just say in the law that there is an economic property right to your information, any information about you that you leak to a company through your use of the internet, social media platforms belongs to you. And if someone wants to put it together, exploit it, make use of it, they've got to pay you for that. Would that help? All right, Matt, there are economic answers to this question, but maybe not in the way you think. So the ah. tricky part here is with with data, it has substantial economic value in aggregate at the right time for the right buyer, but it perhaps has less value to you personally. So Facebook, let's say, makes like 30, 40 bucks a user per year. So that's maybe not as much as we would think if we're going to think about sort of a new data paradigm. And data is kind of a weird good if you're going to think about it as a good, right? Um, it doesn't diminish. You can keep using it uh, and it gets mm. stale. It's more value in bulk than it is individually. And 
we are getting economic value from using the service, but the value that's really concentrated and being you know, generated by data is for companies once it's concentrated, either to sell to advertisers or to make AI to just mostly predict what better ads we can sell you. So, and simultaneously, it's generating these really severe costs, right? All of these social democratic costs we've been talking about are basically externalities of mm. social media companies in some ways. And so this is an economic question, but the better way to think about it is perhaps to challenge the way we monetize data now, rather than just trying to distribute a pretty modest amount of money to people under the current system. That's such a great answer. All right. You, I'm sold. You convinced me. <laughs> Clearly, you're right about this. Um, I will just say for anyone who wants to think further about this question, just remember that the social media platform business model is what is your role in it? You, user, are the product. Mm -hmm. You are you are being monetized. You're not the consumer. You are what is being sold. Mm -hmm. That clarifies things for me. By the way, you can find me at Matt L. Robeson on Twitter, because again, just like everyone else, I use all these platforms. I criticize the heck out of them, but there are sort of necessities in modern life. You can find all the information about this show. You're probably finding out about it because you saw it on Twitter. So there you go. All right, look, <laughs> yeah. since we're talking about economics, let's talk economics. One of the biggest focuses, foci in a big tech platform, social media policy is antitrust. It's trying to reduce the market power of these big companies. Why is antitrust such a big issue? And why do we need new legislation on it? Yes. Ah, the answer is very simple. We have record economic concentration in this country. And we have been working for years to address this concentration. And it's not just in tech, it's in a bunch of industries, but we'll talk about tech. This is a highly concentrated industry and it's happened so quickly and we have failed to respond. It's due to a bunch of things, but really briefly, you know, a, a, a movement to try to narrow the application of antitrust has really succeeded. And that movement is, you know, intellectually, it's the consumer welfare standard, right? we are going to narrow all of the good public interest goals of antitrust down to really one question, which is whether, is it saving consumers money? And as we've already touched on in the show, that kind of breaks down once services are free because we're being charged for those services. We're facing the costs of these services, but they're not monetary costs in the same ways that they are to other goods. So we're, Antitrust enforcement has been pretty anemic, but it's also not well suited all the time to tech problems. Um, and also antitrust, you know, it's been a little slow. So we want to strengthen our antitrust laws. We want to make them more able to deal with the kinds of concentration and questions we have in the tech sector. Um, and we want to make them faster so that they can kind of keep up with the speed of the industry, as it were. So... In other words, just to make sure I'm following, the Sherman and Clayton antitrust laws built around busting union and 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 uh, uh, busting unions. See, that's so ingrained <laughs> in me. Busting big railroads and you know and steel conglomerates a hundred years ago, they don't do the job in a 21st century tech economy. Yes, we the way that the courts have interpreted them over time, we've no longer interpreted them to do the job. The bones here are good. And you know, we're just trying to rehab the house as it were of Sherman and Clayton. Like those bones are good. And now because of how we've 
interpreted them and how the conversation has gone over the years. Um, we are trying to add sort of tech specific um, new laws to support it. We're trying to add enforcement resources to support it. Um, and we're trying to sort of shift how we enforce those laws, right? So the DOJ and the, the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission are revising their merger guidelines, and they will revise them to be more in tune with the kinds of questions we want to be asking about tech companies, not just railroads. Going back to your list that I quoted at the very top of the show, which included things like widespread fraud, abuse of small mm -hmm. businesses, abuse is such a lovely euphemism there. I think I think what you maybe were reaching for was crushing the life out of um, small businesses, abuse of market power, threats to workers' rights. You know, we've all heard about, you know, being a picker at an Amazon warehouse, mm -hmm. curtailed innovation, again, crushing innovative companies. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like antitrust, a, a new enforcement, a new understanding of antitrust laws, or perhaps new laws themselves is necessary. Mm -hmm. Is it sufficient or is there more that needs to be done on the economic front? You've hit the nail on the head, necessary, but not sufficient. Antitrust is the government's best vehicle to address persistent anti-competitive behavior from individual companies. But as you just outlined, that's not all that we're dealing with, right? Yes, we want structural remedies because when we break down concentrated economic power, we enable competition to take care of some of the things that we don't like. If there were more, if there were more e-commerce platforms, small businesses could choose to sell on other e-commerce platforms instead of taking the abuse that Amazon gives them. So we want to enable the market to work where it can. But a lot of these are just full-on market failures that are not going to be solved. So we need behavioral remedies. We need competitive tools and rules that actually get at the self-preferencing, the discrimination, some of the weird novel abuses that tech platforms have made up to sort of hurt customers and business users. Part of the original problem with large companies that are subject to in economic terms, network effects mm -hmm. is that they they have they become natural monopolies, right? They so if you think about the classic example of a railroad, the value of the network rises for everyone the more extensive the network is. We used to see this with ATM machines. No one's old enough to remember this except me among my <laughs> listeners. Oh my gosh. Look, kids, you know how you can go to a bank and get money? You don't do this anymore. You use whatever, your, your Apple Pay. But once upon a time, there were dollar bills and you could get these out of a machine at a bank. And in the early days of ATMs, there were different networks. It was so annoying. You could only get money out of the bank if you happened to go to an ATM that was part of the right network. But then all these networks interlocked and expanded. And now it's so much more valuable to you to be able to do this because you could go anywhere. Well, the same thing happens with social media. The more pervasive the network is, the more valuable your participation in it. So I have to ask you, Aaron, have these biggest tech platforms, Facebook, Amazon, have they become utilities? Have they become natural monopolies? And I ask that because, as if my question wasn't long enough already, my public economics professor told me 30 plus years ago that mm -hmm. the best business model in America is to become a regulated utility because you get a guaranteed profit every year. You know, a public a public regulatory commission, a public utilities commission says you get 10% this year. That's that's the way it goes. Are these 
are these things now subject to such network effects that they're in essence utilities and they should be regulated as such? Oh, we love the big economics thinking on the show, Matt. Your listeners must be so smart. My listeners are smart and extremely good looking, by the way. Oh, really? An extremely good looking, a part of the radio audience. That's my story. (laughs) So I... I would posit that there is a future in which we need to think about regulating all kinds of tech as sort of more of a public utility mindset, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of value in terms of internet services, period, being more of a, we're moving even further towards the public utility end of the spectrum. And as we go up the internet stack, there are also good arguments, I think, for thinking about sort of cloud services or really base infrastructural services as being regulated more in the model of um, some stylizing from public utility regulation. But Got it. Oh, oh but there's more. But, but for the platforms you named, right, like from a consumer perspective, Amazon or Facebook, et cetera, I'm not sure we want to, to accept that this is the final form of consumer technology. And it's hard to do that, right? We we have a poverty of imagination on this issue. It's hard for people to imagine search without Google, e-commerce without Amazon, social media without Facebook. But these aren't the inevitable end states of any of these services. And in fact, we actually don't like a lot of these designs, Mm. but they've just become these monopolists defending their fiefdoms. So just one alternative, just to get even more technical with you, Matt, before we move on, is just it's, it's not that we have to just accept these monopolies. We could open them up. And, mm-hmm. you know, one, we could sort of implant structural remedies to break up the platforms from then selling on the platform and out-competing everyone else because, you know, you're giving yourself preferencing. That's one thing we can do that's easy. But we could also data portability and interoperability, a little bit like what you are mentioning with the ATMs, right? Right, right. You and I can take our social profiles and our social networks or our Spotify recommendations, or our Amazon buying history, whatever it may be, if we mandate that different services have to be interoperable with one another, it'll be so much easier for people to actually have a choice. Once you lower those switching costs between services, it'll be easier for people to move, we'll have more competition again. And that's the whole point of competition is for people to actually get services they like. And we don't have a choice right now. So All I'm saying is I'm not ready to stick us with the choices we have with public utility regulation quite yet. Love it. That's, uh, that's, that's really smart. That's great. And yes, the listeners to this show, we feel free to walk out because we know that this group can handle it. Um, All right. I've been kind of taking the jaws approach to this show. I've been saving the shark for the final 40 minutes. And in this case, (laughs) the final 12 or so Um, let's talk about the big, one here, which is societal harms, including, mm-hmm. you know, um, shiving democracy. Um, mm-hmm. The Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen, showed pretty conclusively that not only does Facebook and Instagram and these other social media platforms, not only do they cause very quantifiable harms to people, especially young people, but Facebook knew. They knew all along. I sound like Mark Ruffalo um, in, in that spotlight movie, it's like, they knew, they knew mm-hmm. all yeah, along. They knew. Um, what can government law or regulation do about that? 
Yeah. Uh, Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, and I were on a panel um, earlier this year talking about this in terms of imagining a better social media. And I'll tell your audience what I, the case that I made then, which is actually there is a lot we can do. And barring all of the political dysfunction, we need to channel all of this angst and anxiety that we have about our kids, our communities, our businesses into pushing for these things. So consumer protection, we can invent consumer protection for software, right? We don't currently have a place in government that is necessarily well equipped to regulate software. The poor, great public servants at the Federal Trade Commission I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, only had like 10 technologists, period. And they're up against the biggest industry we've ever had. So one, we're lagging and we need the government to catch up on all kinds of consumer protection issues. And they can do that. We just need to give them the resources to do it. And in the report that we've written and in my advocacy, we should give them some rulemaking power to do it, right? Because if it's not a good candidate for breaking up, these are candidates for consumer protection. Because it's not just big companies that are causing the problems. Some of them are really small players. They're data brokers or, you know, Clearview selling selling your face to anyone who will buy it, right? So oh, those gosh. are- oh. yes, Just you yes. saying that out loud is just, it, if that doesn't cause people to throw up in their mouths a little bit, you've sort of lost the, the thread on what America's about, but please go on. Exactly. Liberty, right? And so we can defend our liberty through a lot of ways new laws and consumer protection. And so it's true that we have lagged, but there are so many good ideas on the shelf around consumer protection, transparency into what these companies are doing in terms of content moderation, interoperability so that we can have more choice, antitrust. We need resources, new laws, and we need our legislators to be working on these problems. And so it's it's not all hope is lost. And yeah, some of them the democratic problems, these are big, thorny, socio-political crisis level problems. And we can drill more into them if you want. But we're not even taking the low hanging fruit in terms of mandating transparency to know what's going on, instituting consumer protection so that you have at least basic fiduciary duties to your users, like a duty of care or a duty of loyalty in the same way that like a doctor or lawyer shouldn't be able to screw you over maybe tech platforms should too. And so we're just at the beginning of this. But um, if this is the shark, it's like, don't worry, like we can figure out a shark cage, we can figure out some lifeguards for the beach to be keeping people away. We're just at the early stages of doing that. I don't know, I'm afraid we're going to need a bigger boat. Let me ask you one more <laughs> kind of down in the weeds one yeah. before we kind of zoom out to, to close out the down in the weeds question is, Boy, is this weedy because it involves a number. It's Section 230. Now, people may have heard about this when Frances Haugen came out with her whistleblowing, and we we had I, we did shows about it here. You could find them in the in the feed. Could you just quickly give people the nutshell version on what is Section 230 and why does it matter? Is that something we need to be focusing on? Yeah. Okay. So Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. Basically, it's the protection for you and me and internet companies to be able to share stuff that other people say online and not be liable for it. So I can retweet Matt, but you can't necessarily sue me for that. And you can't sue Twitter for post for what what a posting whatever Matt said. And the reason we have by the this, way, folks, you you can't sue me either. I just want to be clear about that, please. <laughs> and and so it's 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 a it's a liability protection. It gives you and me and tech companies online immunity 
from being sued basically for what other people say. Now, it's been the focus of a lot of political discussion on the left and right. Um, There was a point at which Donald Trump was yelling section and the audience was yelling 230 back at the political rallies um, in the last election cycle. So wild. But um, the, the long and short is that it does a great job of protecting you and I online and protecting the decisions we and tech companies make to moderate content, right? Like it was, it was invented in the first place so that a company wasn't penalized for trying to do a good faith job of moderating content. And it does a good job of protecting us. It does a bad job of incentivizing companies to do well, right? So it does a good job of protecting, but it does much less well on putting in place incentives to moderate well, right? And, and we, we see that, right? Like content moderation is very poor in some ways. We'd like it to be better. So Section 230 protections are really important in the sense that if we had liability for everything we and others said online, or if, G, if G, Google had liability for everything we put in our email, that would kind of grind everything to a halt. So those are important. And it's not that we don't need to consider some potential reforms to Section 230, especially when it comes to like, selling products or when you're paying for a service it seems like those are areas where liability might be better but the reason we're talking about section 230 is because people are um, anxious and frustrated about political discourse online and to those people we have to remind them that section 230 doesn't give you grounds on which to sue right section 230 is only protecting you Um, protecting companies from your litigation if you have grounds to sue. And so actually the real culprit here is the First Amendment. And we can have such a rich discussion. Of course, protecting a freedom of expression is much larger than just a conversation about the First Amendment. But so many people are, are just thinking that if Section 230 weren't there, I could sue people for all the things that I don't like online, when actually the case is that the First Amendment is the thing that's going to determine whether or not you can do that. And Section 230 is protecting companies from moderating, which sometimes helps you out. So it's a big thorny conversation. And part of the problem is it's become a lightning rod that's distracted from all of the things that we could get done this term, including passing the tech antitrust bills or passing privacy legislation, which are structural fixes that will fix the upstream problems to get us what we want rather than focusing downstream on like somebody's tweet that we don't like. Let's close out on this by doing kind of the ultimate zoom up. And I know that we've treated incredibly rich, detailed, important, thorny topics as a drive-by here. And if people want to read more about this and really dig into the details. I just, I commend the reports from Aaron Simpson, just Google and and look it up center for American progress. And you'll find a ton more on this, but let's, let's in the last three minutes or so, let's just zoom up to this kind of big picture question. About 50 years ago, Ralph Nader wrote a book called unsafe at any speed about the dangers of American cars. Now he wasn't saying no one should drive, but the title sure implied there was no such thing as a safe car. It's a bit like clean coal or safe cigarettes. It's an oxymoron. When I think about the attack on all of us and our democracy from Russia, the amount of misinformation and conspiracy theories that have burrowed into our brains, a major party in the US is essentially commingled with QAnon. What Rick Hassan, the, the, the election law scholar, a previous guest on this show calls cheap speech, 
and how hard it is to get credible information that we can all kind of use together in a democracy. I have to wonder, and I have to ask you, is social media or big tech platforms safe at any speed? Is there such a thing as an ultimate good here? Or is this a case where the basic network economics and the design and the psychology of the platform means that it's inevitably going to lead to such negative effects that we can't have this kind of thing compatibly with a healthy and free society. Mm, very powerfully put, Matt. Um, but to, to you and to Ralph Nader, I would say this isn't the case with internet services. We can have a better internet. The harms we're seeing, these aren't inevitable. They're not the necessary cost of using these services to do the things we like that do make us more healthy and do make us more free. Social media is not actually inherently antisocial, but certainly this iteration of the services that we're using now totally are. And so I would say the current stagnant big tech players are in some ways stopping us from getting to better. And so I would say concentrated unaccountable informational power of the kind we're seeing now is unsafe at any speed. But that's not inevitable. And we don't have to accept that for the services that we use all the time, every day, we can get to better. And public governance has a very important role in setting those guardrails, putting in place those seatbelts and those speed limits and those let's regulate engines so they don't blow up. And we're just at the beginning of making sure we have all of those regulatory pieces in place so that you and I and all of your listeners can have services that we actually want, that don't addict us, that don't undermine our democracy, that don't zap all of the economic promise from our communities. And so the short answer is no, but man, do we have a long way to go. And if people want that brighter future, which boy, I love ending on good news. I, I actually feel uplifted talking to you. If people want that, they they need to let their political representatives know that this is yeah. important to them, that they, they don't want to just sign away all their rights and become attached to another human being as part of a human sentai pad. They don't want to have their brain be sort of the battlefield between nations in the future struggle for which political system is going to predominate on earth and so forth. People need to actually weigh in and say, actually, this is this is a political issue that matters to me. I, I'm not consenting to this. I'm not, not agreeing to the place we've landed. And as you say, I, I believe that things can get better, but it's it's actually our elected representative's responsibility to make that happen. All right. On that bright and cheery and uh, let's get to work note, Aaron Simpson, uh, Director of Technology Policy at the Center for American Progress. Thanks so much. Thank you, Matt.